0: welcome to fifth walls building to zero podcast the real estate industry is the world's single largest contributor to climate change at fifth wall we're on a mission to help the industry eradicate its carbon emissions and build to zero i'm your host brendan wallace What if we could give buildings a metabolism? In today's episode of Building to Zero, I explore that very question and more with Rachel Armstrong, professor at Newcastle University. We dive into a new sustainable design approach called experimental architecture, which aims to solve many of the built environments problems by transforming buildings into a form of nature. Enjoy the conversation. Rachel, thank you so much for joining. Where are you coming in from on Zoom today?
1: I'm coming in from Newcastle-on-Tyne in the UK.
0: And
1: it's uh, it's just afternoon.
0: Great. And I I have to say, I I love painting behind you. You were kind of giving me a bit of the backstory before, but it's it's a really interesting backdrop.
1: Yeah, this is a painting by an artist called Helen Chadwick, who was nominated for the Turner Prize, but didn't win it uh, in the UK. And she was the first artist that I started to work with. And she was very interested in notions of the body and space. And this painting is called One of the Viral Landscapes. And it was done at a time when... HIV was the main pandemic. And it was a comment really about the body as a landscape and how we inhabit infected milieus. So I thought it was appropriate for these particular times.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. Sorry that mine is a bit more pedestrian with simply the fifth wall logo, but uh, I will get over the backdrop envy. So, new to start, can you just kind of give your background and obviously like how you became interested in sustainable building materials and experimental architecture? Like, where that. I mean, walk us through the dawn of your career.
1: I guess I've always been interested in the principles of life. For just looking at the world, even when I was a little kid, you know, you'd find me out in the back garden with a spoon and a jar, not much else, because my mum was sick of having to wash my clothes by hand. And I was just really curious about how things came together—the choreography of little bodies, the, the squishiness of organic matter. How some stuff was hard. I mean, all of all of that really framed my early perspectives and I must say I've probably never grown up and uh, when I was a teenager then of course you get these rational frameworks and I was told that in order to do this stuff uh, you needed to have an honest job so go and be a doctor so I started to do medicine and um, I mean I trained and I practiced as a as a doctor so I'm a qualified medic but I don't practice anymore I've not kept up my licenses but it was in the early 1990s when I was a medical student I went to Pune in India as part of a sabbatical and I worked on a leprosy colony and I saw how people with different forms of bodily ability could really restore their social life through very simple technologies. Leprosy is a very complex social political disease or or an infection and illness leaving you with kind of compromises in terms of your abilities so bacterium actually is quite like TB it doesn't go into the lungs it, it starts actually in the nerves and it works from the outside in so people lose the feeling in their you know fingers and toes and that means that when they go for a walk they can't feel you know that pressure that we get when we're going for a walk that all oh, my feet are a little bit sore and you adjust your body weight so they actually break their bones when they when they go for a long walk um, and the other thing that happens is that the facial nerves start to also get uh, eaten away and it means that people won't blink to to Keep their eyes moist, so they lose their eyesight through a keratosis. In other words, the eyes get dry, and then they all fog up, and uh, you can't see anymore. And because of the stigmata of leprosy, which is often depigmented patches on on people with uh, darker skin, they are cast out by their families because of the deformities, because of the kind of the ignorance that that comes with the causes and the treatments of the infection. And so, in in Pune, a group of uh, people with leprosy grouped together and they literally beat the ground into fertile soil and set up a little village and they started to actually trade eventually with the the city community and then medics came in to support the welfare of the people there and it's a mixture of you know people with quite advanced disabilities but also families because because they they made their own way of living they weren't cast out they weren't outcast anymore what I got a view into is I I went there as a a, an assistant to a hand surgeon who was literally taking tendons from non-dominant digits that worked so let's say your index finger it's not dominant and you would take that tendon out and you'd stitch it into the thumb which is dominant because that's how you grip that's how you hold down a job uh, particularly when it's uh, you know like India and there are a lot of manual workers so because the nerve damage leaves you with the inability to feel it means that you can do these tendon transfers without complicated anesthetics and so this can happen actually whilst the person's awake not only can you stitch a finger tendon into a thumb tendon but you can also split the chewing muscle around the eye and thread it into the inside of the eye so that when you chew gum you moisten your eye, so you don't lose your eyesight so fast it obviously depends on a lot of participation with the person but what I saw was very simple technology and appendages and prostheses really enabling people that had huge disadvantage in in their life to reconstruct their world and it wasn't just the body it wasn't just that they could tie up foot drop using a simple leather strap to their knee um, so they could walk without scraping their foot on the ground that they had designed cooking instruments that had one meter long handles so they didn't need to get close to the stove where they would inadvertently burn themselves um, and so they learned a cooking technique which was you know a meter back. From (laughs) from where we would stand and also tools with very high mechanical advantages and it wasn't just the tools and it wasn't just these extended bodies extending you know through space and materials in order to live live a fulfilled life it was also that they could also build their community and that for me was an extraordinary insight into how our experiences are shaped and there were lessons there that I learned you know for example when the bridges of the nose fall down because the bacterium gets into the cartilages so your nose goes all flat and it's called a lion shape in a kind of stigmata but they would have this pot of um, wax and it would be heated very gently and they put their hands in wax to make the skin supple so that they they wouldn't get contractures but they would also mold themselves wax noses so they would put these little wax plugs up their noses so they could have pointy noses after the damage caused by the bacterium and this This was, to me, really extraordinary, Um, partly because I was naive enough to think that someone with leprosy, because they had this outcast view of themselves and of society, wouldn't have a sense of aesthetic sensibility. And there was also a functional reason, which was in order to keep your glasses on, because wearing dark glasses protected against the wind drying out your eyes. And also in India, the sun's very strong. And it would also keep your, having a pointy nose, kept the glasses on your face space as well so it was it was really extraordinary things that you wouldn't think of and I really wanted to take this learning back to the UK which was the combination of the body the technology and the architecture the spatial the spatial lessons of how you manage space uh, in an altered world and um, I really wanted to work with that but when I got back to the UK I realized that modern medicine is systematized and legislated in a way that that works for us in the western world but it had other things that were lacking in it in that the body was reduced into its cells and that you go straight to the you know fix the little problem but you don't really reconstitute the person in the world that was the bit for me that was missing and that's why I started to look for other sources of knowledge hence Helen Chadwick's work so I started to see the artists I I had no language for this I I had no arts education whatsoever I I, I wouldn't have known what design was if it hit me in the but what I started to see I started to pay attention and become aware of things that previously I hadn't seen and so I actually started to reach out to artists because at the time as well this is the early 1990s there was no such thing as art science and when I made contact with Helen Chadwick through the work she was exhibiting at the barber African. We had this really weird conversation. It was wonderful. In her kitchen, she, she, she let me into her house. I mean, <laughs> I couldn't have been anyone. And We had this really interesting conversation. It was almost like two worlds meeting. She had a very poetic and insightful, artistic way of looking at the world. And I had a very technical, scientific way. And she said, you know what? We have to work together. So we wrote this piece for the uh, Venice Biennale, which was about these uh, urine sculptures. So her and her partner, had peed in the snow and they made casts and I wrote a piece about it through a urological perspective you know what does it mean for <laughs> rates of flow and angles of trajectory, it was it was, it was, was so weird because it was also poeticised by Helen Chadwick but I realised at that point something about working with artists was opening up new spaces and again I really didn't have any way of grounding any of this so I kept on chasing artists uh, so the next person I worked with was Orlon who was the uh, French performance artist who very radically at the time was using cosmetic surgery as a uh, form of artistic practice as a form of auto self portraiture which was very difficult for the medical profession um, and very difficult for for the public and I was very privileged actually to be with her and you know help her reach out to doctors be part of the conversation I was almost like a translator um, trying to bridge the gap between the artistic desire and the the functional technical viewpoint of established medics, so people like Professor Moss from uh, University College London, an Oxford plastic surgeon. I mean, all of all of these people, you know, were talking around a table with the bizarre uh, visionary requests. Um, but the, the but the translation in the middle was really interesting for me. Again, I didn't know what that meant, but I kept on, you know, kept on trying to explore this space. Okay. Another one was then um, Stella. Um, so, uh, yeah. I,
0: <laughs> at that time, were you really pioneering that intersection, meaning that, that intersection between aesthetics and design and ergonometry and human physiology? Was anyone else at the intersection of so many distinct, discrete, academic field and artistic.
1: I- yeah, I, I, I honestly, I, I, honestly don't know. I don't think so, but it is possible. But I, I really felt that there was such an incredible space opening up, which was a, because there were also cultural debates that were happening at the time. And through being interested in the artists' work and you know accompanying them to various presentations, I started to see a landscape open up where virtual reality and was promising. The escape from the body at the time you know the the whole transhumanist view that we could redesign re-engineer uh, improve the human body towards immortality you know a kind of immortal machine and the debates that came around that were really interesting but then also we started to see the debates of the uh, post-human which was actually well hang on why why are you centering everything around the human there are all kinds of issues beyond anthropocentrism that that need attention. And so this environment of, of a kind of an expanded cultural landscape that was critiquing the dominance of science as an authority in making these formal decisions about identity, about the, the, the freedoms associated with technologies and the responsibility, and kind of really complicating that space. And for me, you know, coming from a science and technology background, reading the informal opportunities here was, was just um, an extraordinary position to be in. And I was then approached, and this this leads me into architecture now. So when, when I was articulating my views about certain perspectives, you know, what it meant for certain kinds of medical imaging to look at a body we could see people from the inside what does that mean and also working with the artists through through, uh, describing their work and almost like a medical reading and and a kind of a re-envisaging of the value of their work and and what it enables the medical profession to do in a a more humanities based way then um, uh, Neil Spiller who was at one of these series of conferences called virtual futures approached me and said well do you want to come and teach?" architecture students about technology. And I thought, ooh, what are architecture students? <laughs> I, I'm very keen to teach about technology. I don't know what they need to know. So there began my incredible adventure with the Bartlett School of Architecture, where I met people like uh, Peter Cook and Stephen Gage. And I honestly thought that that was the world of architecture. So this, this incredibly uh, experimental, speculative, propositional, interrogative, let's call it um, a trans- transformational practice that that was being explored there by you know world-leading architect was the environment in which I was introduced. That
0: was your first exposure. Exactly that
1: was my first so I thought hey this architecture stuff is great because because for me it was a discipline that could both accommodate science and engineering it brought in the imagination and it had vast skills in arts and design and I was just thinking well isn't this the ideal discipline? I'm I'm really interested to see what could be done in this space.
0: And it's so integrative, it sounds like, of so much of where, you know, you started your career, in just human physiology and ergonometry, and it intersects with also, you know, broad social and political questions that, that again, touch on microbiology, and just, a, it, it's a complicated, highly integrative space, and I guess that leads me to my question, which is like, what is experimental architecture? How do you define that?
1: Right, well, I wouldn't define it. I would look at uh, Uh, Peter Cook's uh, definition of experimental architecture. And what I understand was that uh, there was a series of books being produced, you know, experimental art, experimental design. And Peter Cook was commissioned to write the experimental architecture book. And his thesis in the experimental architecture book was rather a technotopian one, but critiquing high modernity in the relationship to let's call it bottom-up and top-down design, essentially. How could new technologies and new materials give back the city to people rather than these top-down urban design programs. So he was noting a friction and there was actually a very political move in, let's say, radically enabling new applications and new forms of envisaging the potential of of these leading-edge technologies and putting them in the hands of the people to re-empower them and bring back their relevance to the city. And so this, this idea of an experimental architecture, I think, was really, Really advanced again by Lebius Woods. So if we think about the idea of experiment, it's a very interesting, complex one, normally associated with science and a particular kind of modern laboratory. But Lebius Woods used the draftsman's board and the draftsman's tools and techniques to say, well, actually, the experiment can start with thinking, and through the tools of the architect, uh, we can start to draw possibilities for new forms of architecture and interrogate, you know, the profession itself, open up new spaces into big questions like how does architecture respond to earthquake way beyond you know previously what architecture agendas might be concerned with or how does it deal with the aftermath of war so it, it was a very you know provocative and incredibly brilliant and creative uh, perspective and I think what Woods did was really set a new agenda for practice of experimental architecture but there were critics who would say look this is all on paper it's not real this is just speculative you know it's very nice it's very clever and accomplished but it doesn't really mean anything and if we wind forward uh, maybe towards the end of the millennium when we have the Bologna process in the EU which is essentially the eu trying to standardize teaching practices and higher education platforms it's starting to ask for all people in higher education to have phds and so what's very interesting about experimental architecture is because of the radical nature of its agendas and because it is fundamentally designed there that it became a space in which a new generation of architectural experiment and the idea of architectural research what does it mean to research in architecture. What does that look like? It's it's not science. There are aspects of it that do very much look like science when we think about the engineering aspects. But there are other aspects of, of architecture that are really interrogating the design thinking, art and association with um, cultural theories. And so what you've seen post-millennium is actually a number of different positions being supported. So like in Innsbruck, there's an experimental architecture professor. In the Bartlett, there's an experimental architecture professor. and there's me at newcastle university um you know it's 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 very interesting that these have become academic posts and the common thread for them really is is not the outputs because i think all of those different centers have very different kind of design agendas but the common thing is how does architecture actually lead at the critical questions and that we're faced in the millennium particularly given its importance in terms of environmental impact where um, you're probably have heard the figure that, you know, the built environment is responsible for 40% of the current global car- carbon footprint, which is shocking. It's around the same as transport.
0: Yeah. And I think I think everyone in so many respects appreciates how, how integral and how integrative the built environment is some of these big public issues that we are dealing with, right? Everything from climate change, that, that stat you just mentioned is shockingly large, right? It's kind of a, it's almost like the culprit that's hiding in plain sight, that the world around us is responsible for the vast majority of the world's CO2 emissions. But I think also the pandemic has probably given a very intimate understanding of how much the the buildings we live in, the homes we live in, the airports we travel through, and the public health dynamics of like, you know, how is air recirculated? That's also, I imagine, an opportune Situation for experimentation for you. And so what I'm curious is when you say experimental architecture, what are the experiments conducted around? Like, what's the mechanization of it? Is it, is it looking at public health, at kind of sustainability, at, at a cost? But is it, does it also integrate sociology? Like, are you also trying to measure the quality and the qualia of people's lives in spaces? Is that also a component of it?
1: I would say all of that, yes. But the, the key lens, if I go back to, you know, sitting out in the garden with my... (laughs) with my mum worrying about the washing. The key lens I use is the the lens of life. And so with my background in physiology and biology and biochemistry and an absolute passion for origins of life sciences, weirdly, how does inert matter become living? I had a very technical and deep understanding of dynamic materiality, you know, lived through medicine and the body, but actually also grounded in physical and natural sciences. And so my question was, when I was given this role of go teach technology to the students, because, you know, you've been immersed in that world, my question was, hmm, can I use life as a technology? and, And how might that work? Because I saw a lot of people trying to respond to some of these environmental questions with biomimicry, copying the shapes and, and trying to emulate function in, in some in some way. and, and I, you know there wasn't anything wrong with that. I just felt it was a great departure from what life could actually do so i kind of dug down into my biochemistry physiology you know botany all, all all the things that i'd learned and just thought so what's the tool set here and so the thing that ran through everything actually and i i had i had my own personal journey with this is that if you think at the beginning of the 1990s the big narrative in the nature of life was the gene we were starting to sequence entire genomes. Not quite yet. I mean, synthetic biology hadn't really happened, uh, but we were learning a lot more about uh, genetics. First of all, when I was a kid, <laughs> I was very interested in uh, Richard Dawkins' books about the selfish gene. But in the 1990s, after i you know been on the wards with medicine and I'd been immersed in a world of people who were seriously a- a disadvantaged by their fate in life, I really felt that this, this deterministic worldview of, you know, genes making who you were and they and it was the gene with this selfish drive. It just didn't fit morally, spiritually socially uh, biologically with 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 the incredible creativity resilience and ability to transcend all odds you know that I'd seen as a doctor on the wards so I already had this kind of problem with the ideology of, of the gene and so I, I was I was and it, it, was, too, it was
0: almost too reductionist in, it in
1: was the world. exactly it was too reductionist and it required whoever the observer was to be a god and know all the answers rather than being a body exploring the world and trying to figure out relationships and possibilities and and kind of finding out which bits work. That was the basis from which I stood. And that went against the idea of the gene. So um, I started looking a little bit at actually Lynn Margulis's work. And I came up with this notion of a cytoplasmic manifesto. I was going to look at everything but the gene in order to figure out how a body responded to its environment. I kind of wanted to get away from the, well, you know, it's all in the genes thing and actually figure out through a model, through a way of thinking, through a way of working with materials, how this might be possible. It wasn't easy. And it wasn't until I came across this model of the protocell, a contested term,
0: (laughs) which I'll say right now. What does the protocell mean? Right. I don't so know. So the that
1: so exactly the, the, the protocell is on one hand you can say it is a dynamic droplet. It is a it is a body that is simply a chemical blob in a field in which its interface has um, what I would call a metabolism, a simple metabolism. In other words, when you bring two fields of reactive materials together, they create a chemical reaction that produces both chemistry, so it transforms something, and then it produces uh, physics, which might be forward movement or something, it changes surface tension or something. And so um, you actually get quite lifelike appearances for something that isn't, alive. And, you know, no DNA, that was really the important thing for me. So if I could look at these droplets and observe what they could do without a top-down instruction... It gave me a view on what is possible from the bottom up, from all those things that aren't predetermined. What is the range of that? That was the incredible uh, insight there. And so the protocell had been the work of Takashi Ikigami and Martin Hanzek, who'd been working together. Um, and they were working in the origins of life sciences and artificial intelligence. And they'd come together kind of looking at the idea of a dynamic body as a reaction of an alkali environment with fat and then, you know from, from your basic chemistry you'll probably remember that fat and alkali make soap and soap is really good at messing around with surface tension. So it means that when those t- two worlds collide you get movement and so uh, Takashi Ikigami and Martin hansa could created these series of droplets. Now the reason why I say it's contested is because in the same and related group was another field of thought, which was trying to design the first artificial cell. And so the idea was that that was the proto cell, the first artificial cell, whereas the proto cell in an origins of life theory was the chemical assemblage that existed before the cell. So there are two different schools of thought. Um, that, that holds slightly different worldviews and it leads to, let's call it irreconcilable tensions. And so, my t- use of the proto cell is in the origins of life uh, domain, which is what's the stuff that happens before you get your genes, before you get all that stuff that we associate with biology? What's, what's the range and potential for that? Because, from a design perspective, from the built environment perspective, if these agents aren't fully alive, then it's opening up an incredible realm of design possibility, because once something is alive, you have an ethical duty to look after it in a way, even if it is the most Machiavellian motivation to look after it, which is you want it to do some work, and therefore you need to give it what it needs in order to do that. And so at the, at the, fundament of working with life as a technology, as a material, is, is an ethical uh, concern. And that was what was quite interesting about the protocell, because once, once you started to look at what a, a droplet can do, amazing patterns, incredible behaviours, um, they even cluster, and I have no rational reason as to why they go around looking like that they're behaving as a population. Extraordinary. I mean, we, we would use the term emergence, but we may as well use the word magic.
0: Um, and because so that <laughs> they're doing this in the in the absence of obviously any genetic material. And then therefore, you're saying the absence of any inherent drive, it is just existing in space. Right. It is simply a function of chemistry and physics. And then exactly. also in looking at it, you can dissociate and divorce from any kind of ethical judgment about what it should do or should get better or should become more complex. Is that is that part exactly, of what exactly
1: you can't is. explain all that magic through the gene? You can't. Right. So right. what it's giving you is a lens of creativity that exists in matter in the world right now, not back at the time of biogenesis, you know, when you had volcanoes and meteorites and, uh, you know, asteroids releasing all their gases and, and this kind of strange Hadean cauldron that, you know, if you put enough energy into it, yeah, sure, something's going to happen. But you could see that through these little droplets that that potency of the living world is there. It's it's innate. It is part of the chemistry of the universe. And that's really exciting because the traditions of modernity and, you know, kind of industry, let's say, proposes that non-living matter is inert. You know, it's only through the agency of life in some way that matter can behave, or it's you know, the observer relationship with with the matter itself. But being able to see that a simple assemblage of chemistry has this inner life um, it was 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 extraordinary because it says, hang on, we have not unleashed the potential of the world that we live in through design right now.
0: And this is, and you're talking about obviously inert Right. right exactly um, talking <laughs> largely about just the inert stuff the material that, that, that defines the, the built environment it's interesting because even in the way you just presented that construct which is yeah I do think of buildings as being inert I think of streets as being inert and not having a drive right other than the drive of the designer of the the creator the command and control environment whether it's at the building level or at the city level and it's kind of the the, the reframing that you're saying no, it actually it has complexity, it has movement, it has chemical dynamics that interplay with us as animate objects in ways that are very, very complex. Is that, is that kind of the, the ab- genesis? Ab-
1: of Absolutely. Absolutely. And we develop rhetoric to take that all away. So let's call it building maintenance. Right. So 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 that we erode the possibility of the agency of matter through the terminology we use, which makes us blind to its full potential. And so I think this is why that, you know, some of the, let's call the millennial developments where more and more practitioners have been looking to biology and biotechnology as a way of rethinking the performance of the built environment is coming up with some extraordinary insights and possibilities. So let's, let's just do something very simple, you know, um, implanting concrete mixes as Henk Jonker does from TU Delft with bacterial spores that if the concrete cracks, water gets in and way the bacteria spring to life and start making a solid carbonate that seals up the crack and stops the concrete from weathering so much. But at the micro level, that concrete is dynamic and you can see it. If you take off your blinkers and you walk around any city in the world, you will see on the outsides of buildings, mildews and mosses and algae and dark patches that you possibly don't have a word for. But that is a kind of, as Simon Park would say, a crypto geography of microbes and a dynamic interplay between, let's call it a substrate you know, literally, we've given microbes these huge sumps of resource, you know, silicate and uh, calcium and titanium and we know we're giving them all kinds of stuff and and they are responding by using their metabolisms to literally create cities of their own and we see them as blemishes on buildings or dark patches or you know the bits where things have run off but those really are like the you know first scratches on the earth's crust at the time of biogenesis when we get that transition from the Hadean, which is the lifeless world to the archaean when the first microbes Know, start to transform lifeless rock and turn it into the biosphere that we know today that can support multicellular life. And, and so that's absolutely incredible. Yeah. <laughs> in
0: the way you're describing it, 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 it's like that's happening, I would assume, inadvertently. In the buildings you're using as an example, the architect or the designer did not intend for you know those uh, microbes to right. have the effect that they are, but they are having that kind of an interaction with what we otherwise deem as an inanimate object and therefrom you're saying comes this kind of complex ecology almost of of animate and inanimate what we think of as inanimate and animate objects, right and, and that's that's the missing link is that is that kind of the connective intellectual tissue between what we traditionally think of as architecture and, and biology and ecology today
1: exactly and actually there's you can almost trace back this um Schism between the living and non living, back to Linnaeus, because he actually came up with three categories for God's natural household. So there was the plant, there was the animal, but there was also the mineral. And Linnaeus had a perspective that said, well, stones are actually living. They're not living in the same way as an animal. They don't move around. They're not living in the same way as a plant. They don't metabolize in the same way, but they do change with time. And so in that sense, they are living by a different degree. And so he thought that sandstone was was born again, a, a different kind of born, than a plant or an animal, by um, accretion, you know, accumulations of things, and he actually thought of that process, what we would call just simply a geophysical process, as actually a living process. So Linnaeus, you know, who was the founder of the classification system that we have today, the binomial nomenclature he actually made more space for the possibilities of life than we have adopted in modernity. And I would say it was probably with Pasteur, uh, Louis Pasteur, who disproved the idea of spontaneous generation in his you know, microbial experiments, keeping some flasks sterile and some could be contaminated and showed that actually they're kind of tiny germs and seeds around that allow life to occur. And with that, then the idea that, you know, inert materials could be alive were, you know, fell from the idea of being on a classification system, but it was replaced by something else, which was the science of the origins of life which then set out to prove that biology was only a more complex version of chemistry and that really characterized certainly the late part of the the 19th century which is where some of the protocell recipes come from uh, a recipe by otto buchley who was a zoologist at the time and he added potash to olive oil and he saw these what he thought were artificial protists which were the simplest single cell animals that biologists knew of in the day. And so he thought, oh, I've created an artificial life um, at that scale is so simple it is literally just a just a step above chemistry and that idea really persisted you know in, into the 20th century probably up until maybe 1920s you know and then embryology you know, we then start to get the rise of the genetic sciences and embryology and this kind of vast dance between flow metabolism and structure genetics so the, the, the crystal is the let's call it the crucifix of the geneticists. And flow this—it's—it's—it's it's not easy to draw. It's not easy to. Uh, work with. So metabolism became almost like uh, something that got forgotten because you couldn't get a handle on it so well, <laughs> yeah, certainly in the earlier part of the 20th century.
0: And, and for experimental architecture, it sounds like a part of it is obviously kind of uh, the, the de these intellectual spheres that have just right. been disparate, right? And and that has kind of changed our intellectual framework of understanding how people interact with space, but even what space is and, and, and conceptualizing and having a Framework for understanding, as you said, what building maintenance really means. And I'm curious, like, what does a world of you know more living buildings, more functional buildings look like? Is there is there a forward-looking projection of like what should we be then therefore building, assuming we still have some agency over you know the kind of, of structures and, and cities and the world that we design going forward?
1: Yeah, great. I, and I think this is it because I think it's about unlocking the potential rather than you know creating a newism. <laughs> So um, if we really wanted to get the most out of our buildings and we really need to think about full life cycles, not just sustainable, but regenerative. When we can change our lenses for looking, we can start to reimagine things anew and we start to be able to imagine beyond a single human lifespan, which is, you know, the anthropocentrism has really framed design thinking throughout the whole of the, the 20th century in, in the modern world. And so when when we can kind of look at different scales, and I think that that is something very typical of the third millennium, our imaging technologies, our, let's call them the biotechnologies, and, and, and the resolution that we're now able to get, both at the microscale, but also, you know, out into the stars, when, you know, incredible telescopes, so our ability to visualise helps us imagine, and these scales are not just facial, they're temporal. And so I, th- I think we're, we're at a stage when we're starting to think what is the layers upon layers and layers of these worlds you know and and their behaviors start to mean as as a coherent whole we're definitely not at the end of this process so i i i I wouldn't want to say i i have the answer but what what i what i do know is that our next stages are really to unlock this potential and think about what it could become and i think that the first move here really is to think about infrastructure that if we want spaces to support life then we need flow not not just hard geometries and inert. Spaces. We also need to think about the ethics of that. So, if we, for example, take the current pandemic, okay, so we could say the city now has too much life, (laughs) that we are now aware of a microbial world that has always been there. It was the first, you know, for for three billion years, microbes, including viruses, were the only inhabitants. Of this planet. They are our ancestors and the original cultures. And what's interesting in their three billion year old world before multicellular organisms come along, and then us, you know, maybe 300,000 years ago, the first whiff of the homo sapiens, <laughs> is that their legacy has been progressive enlightening. And that is the opposite of what we're doing. So not only are they there, but their legacy is, is very different than our own, and there's a lot to learn from them. So there they are. We're suddenly aware of this world. Very interestingly, at the turn of the millennium, we also developed biotechnologies that allowed to see us, see them in a way that we hadn't been able to see them before. So although, you know, Lewin Hook and Robert Hook uh, invented the microscope lenses, um, you know, 17th century, we really only thought that microbes were very patchy. First of all, they were subjects of wonder, but in the 19th century, along comes Pasteur and Robert Koch, and they go, "Mm, these things are associated with disease, and we're going to show you how they are. At the same time, we've got people like Vinogradsky that are going, yeah, but these microbes are also really important as foundations for the biosphere. But Vinogradsky gets ignored pretty much because at the time of Koch and Pasteur, about one third of the population is dying from infectious disease. So microbes become the bad guys, and we set our on a war with them we head out for this age of hygiene where you know we think about the design of bathrooms white sterile wipe clean loads of bathroom products to kill all known germs dead but they don't just kill all known germs dead in our bathrooms they go down into the drains and out into the sewers and um you know start to infect the environment so you know kind of 50 years later you know rachel carson's going silent spring uh what happened to biology
0: (laughs) it's interesting that 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 started with the ability to be able to see them right that that it's not that they, they didn't exist as you mentioned they predate us you know by a long time it's simply that in rendering them visually to us, we became aware of them. And I imagine a part of why we associate a white bathroom with sterility, right? With with a sterile environment, or we associate a white lab with a sterile environment is no other reason than we can't see anything right? Like meaning a, a white bathroom can be the filthiest place on earth, covered in microbes <laughs> that you just it's can't see. Yes. The fact that it is optically or aesthetically white is actually largely irrelevant from the relative hygienicness of that, of that bathroom. And so yeah. is that is that part of kind of how you think of what this new expanding field is? It's kind of teaching us to not trust our visual intuitions that, that are probably born of some historical legacy. Obviously, seeing things that are white and kind of sterile gives a certain impression, but not trusting those intuitions as much because they're not as integrative of the underlying reality of how complex these inanimate objects are like the tiles in a bathroom or the concrete in a building
1: right exactly and i think it's about being critical of you know being i mean it's it's about many prejudices you know being critical of our own blind spots which enables us to see and design better and and that's you know that that we need a new way of thinking first for Third millennial culture of life, let's call it. I, I want to go beyond sustainability in a sense, because you know, one of the symptoms we're seeing of our you know, collective anthrop well, the Anthropocene essentially, is you know, kind of collapses of biodiversity and a and a, a changed biogeosphere is 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 really acting out <laughs> on stable habitats and really causing a lot of disruption. And the question is, you know. How can we change our thinking first, so that then our design and our, and our technologies can be differently? Doesn't mean that we have to reinvent everything. It's just that you know you can do one thing with a spoon that could be incredibly creative, and you can do something else with the same spoon, and it's incredibly destructive. So it's it's not really about having to start again. It's about reconfiguring value and paying attention to the things that matter. And, you know, that kind of whole reconfiguring so that uh, we have a different narrative for how how we live and, and the impacts and our responsibilities. All those things are up for grabs right now. As I say, I mean, I, I think that there are a diversity of voices and perspectives in this. I think it would be, you know, a, a mistake to think there was only one answer. And I, I think if we were going to take nature as a model, nature itself believes in biodiversity. And I think that that would be the the same for design, that diverse approaches to design, particularly those that are situated to their cultures, the materials and the um, resources you know, can be exchanged meaningfully in, in those particular spaces, are probably going to be the ones with the most value at, at this particular time. But I think when we sprung open our doors, saw nothing but, you know, but the pandemic is upon us, it's really made us confront our anthropocentrism because it inverted the importance of people in a city. Suddenly we become the contaminants because. We are vectors. We're the ones that have sown these landscapes.
0: Um, You know, they they,
1: they used to live in the wilderness once upon a time. (laughs) But our meanderings and our abuses of animal welfare and, you know, destruction of natural habitats, that's what's caused the viral trail from far away, which isn't bothering us, and bringing it right into the heart of our homes, which have become, you know, the the most toxic spaces. So inverting that kind of power relation has really thrown, um, you know, a new perspective on you know, what, what we do with this space now, that they're not going to go away. And now that we have these biotechnologies, we're not going to stop seeing them. And so we have people like um, Jessica Green, uh, who was at the University of Boulder in Oregon. Um, and she was, you know, working with these ideas of the microbiome, sampling microbial ecologies, you know, so these, these are These are um, stable ecosystems that live in our our front rooms, in our bathrooms, uh, out in the city as the urban microbiome, in our guts as part of the human microbiome. And they're all in conversation with each other and we're just starting to get this picture like an invisible realm, the same kind of wonder and bizarreness that maybe, you know, uh, Van Leeuwenhoek and uh, Hook, you know, with his little flea, beautiful drawing of the flea that really gave rise to the flea circus round about, you know, 100 years later. And and a whole bunch of jewellers going, oh, look, if things are this tiny, let's go and see if we can design really tiny because that shows us what great artisans we are. Love that. It's kind of so that, you know, OK, we need to be, we, we can't be glib about the danger that the microbial realm can pose us. And that's be, but that's less than one percent of all microbes, less than one percent or way less than one percent of all microbes are pathogens. The rest of them, what are they doing? Well, actually, they're doing what they were doing 3 billion years ago, which is making the world. They make the biogeosphere turn. That's what Lynn Margulis brought to the Western world from you know, um, research that she'd been doing on Russian biological perspectives, which, again, came from a different philosophical base, which was to do with the collective. And so the idea that a cell was a collective, a symbiont, as opposed to an individual organism, which is way more compatible with a Western philosophy, became really transformative in thinking about biology. And now we think that there are at least two kinds of evolution. One is this vertical descent by genetics, as described by people like Dawkins and Darwin but then there's this other one which is horizontal you know and that's called the postmodern synthesis it's about organisms being much more promiscuous and generous and curious about each other and finding ways of not being related to each other and still having progeny and, and bodies that uh, embody their histories let's say and, and and their associations and so in fact all of multicellular life the the, the origin of the eukaryote the the building brick of us was in fact um, a fusion between two more primitive or two more basic forms of life: the archaeon and the euc- uh, and the um, bacterium. And the archaeon is really—it's a lovely, lovely, weird. And I'm not
0: familiar with that. What is it? Exactly.
1: Archae- Archaeans are like good bacteria. they there are at, at this moment, to my knowledge, there are no pathogenic archaeons ever. They—they they don't cause any disease. Bacteria, on the other hand, are the mischievous ones. On the whole, they don't cause too much harm, but they are curious and they're curious and they're talented. They have these incredible metabolisms that can change environments. They can live anywhere. They can, they can, they can transform the world. And that is not an overstatement, but a bacteria can be opportunists and therefore they can cause disease. So these two guys coming together, the archaeon is much more similar to the basic building blocks in our own cell. So, you know, like call it the cell cytoplasm, very, very roughly, Mem- membranes and cytoplasm, something that wraps up the nucleus. That's the archaeon. It's quite like us, but it looks like a microbe. But the bacteria, they're different, but they're, they're also a little bit part of us and they are the um, organelles. You know, the, the, the mitochondria and the chloroplasts in, in plants, and, you know, maybe nine by two flagellae and cilia and things like that. So, um, you know, we, we are a, a kind of a fusion of things. And then with this kind of combined capacity to build, you know, one with mischief and another one with a with a kind of structural sobriety, the, the multicellular world becomes possible. So this, you know, the stories that we're starting to tell, because we can see these invisible landscapes, because we can see the deep past by reading, almost like scrying inside a inside um, a body. You know, like the old uh, priests. You know, would look, open up a body and be able to uh, read things. You know, in the organs and entrails. It's a bit like that, really. We're starting to read through DNA, all kinds of stuff. But that, but the importance of that is about how then we take that knowledge and start to reconfigure the way we work so that it promotes life, so that it can anticipate some of the tensions and help us develop an appropriate diplomacy because the thing with life is that, uh, you know, I, I, I like, uh, I think it's the Michael Crichton quote, you know, life finds a way. That's very true. Um, so it means that you can never be complacent about it. It means that you have to stay at the table and keep negotiating. You have to uh, prove our and, worth.
0: And is your view, like a, you use the word diplomacy, right? And in, in thinking about our perpetual negotiation with that microbiome, with, the, with this complexity, we're just now understanding how integrated it is is your view that you know the, the built environment architecture yeah. is in some ways an, an instrumentation of that diplomacy. We exactly. just haven't realized it. Meaning, we are we are instrumenting that act of diplomacy through instruments we don't understand today mm-hmm. or are not integrative of all that complexity. Is You're that? Not- fundamentally have to think about experimental architecture.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think that's great, Brendan. I think that's that's absolutely it, that architecture provides these technologies and spaces through which integration could happen, but we're largely unaware of it right? Uh, because we are framed in our thinking in very uh, particular ways. You know, that's, that's how we grow up. That's what our education system tells us is true. And that when we can bring research into, you know, architecture and design and the built environment, we can start to interrogate some of these. paradigms. And what I would say is um, I will use the Living Architecture Project as an example of how we might start to structure and develop some of these uh, ideas. So how might we start to create the kinds of integrations that we want because we know that we now are in microbial landscape. But we know we play a role in that because you know they are us and they are in us, but, but what do we do with that? And so the project that I was working on between um, 2016 and 2019 was called Living Architecture. And the idea was that there was a resource circularity that is possible from the home by using microbes to transform what we call waste and turn it into stuff that we can use in the house. So thinking about, can we actually design a metabolic pathway? I'm very interested in how we design with metabolism because it's that, metabolism, because it's that slippery thing that doesn't have any structure but actually requires a beautiful choreography of
0: space. And so- um, It's almost like thinking about the ass at the home as, as in in a cellular fashion, meaning right. you actually want it to have a metabolism. You want to effectively re-render waste material into energy sources. Exactly. And, and that is just to be clear. So so I, so I can understand this, and so listeners can understand yeah. that. That is a that is a kind of leading frontier intellectually of what is today experimental architecture. Yeah. Is that right? Is that kind of one of the ways you would experiment in that field?
1: Yes, it's 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 a way of not making analogy or metaphor about a living building we have a lot you know buildings of skins and you know windows of eyes and there's a lot of metaphor for thinking about how architecture relates to nature and the living world but this is very literal how do we actually if we take our origins of life as let's call it the foundational science for thinking through this and think about how do we use the science and technology of that to literally turn our spaces into something with a metabolism, something that starts to meet some of the criteria of life. Now we don't call them life, they're not alive, but the the terminology living architecture, in my case, there are now many different living architectures, um, but in my case, the living comes from my PhD when I was at the Southern University of Denmark. So I worked between the Bartlett School of Architecture and the Southern University of Denmark, where the protocell and these um, living technologies were being developed. And so the term comes from, how do I take that portfolio of living technologies, which were being explored by Steen. Moussen and Mark Badeau and Norman Packard and they were using them to think about how we build life and I was thinking about oh these are interesting they have lifelike properties they're not life because that's what they're heading for. But if I incorporate those into design and if I incorporate those into the built environment, this is much closer to how do we make a building lively than, right. than, than, for, than form finding. So the living architecture comes from living technologies applied to architectural agendas. And so one of those ports, Portfolio technologies is metabolism and the masters of metabolism are microbes specifically bacteria so the living architecture project thought of an infrastructure so i think you know our first questions are actually infrastructural because if you don't have air and you don't have water and you don't have flow which allows for exchange then it's really hard to get life you can't make life out of a dead inert space even if your atoms are all fizzing around and showing some degree of dynamism
0: (laughs) even if if humans as kind of these macro organisms right if if we are in those spaces it's effectively like we are just slowly dying right as we are in those spaces it's just a matter of time because they're so they're so devoid of the the biosphere and they're so devoid of this complexity that naturally would condition space right Right.
1: exactly and you, you just even think of Air conditioning in a building you know (laughs) you know we don't even really design air you know (laughs) water is an afterthought it's it's a problem in a building because of the kinds of materials that we use if if we put water in a bog it's not a problem you know they're spongy materials you know, the feed other processes. And so so the idea was anyway, to start very simply thinking about infrastructure. So what, what would it take in order to give a building a metabolism? So the first things we did was we built little homes, not for people but for microbes and each one of these little homes had a different metabolism in other words it had a different biochemical pack of tricks that allowed it to take one resource and turn it into another under the right conditions and then we could line them up like apps so that the waste products from one brick or we call them bricks because they were like building units but building metabolism and not structure could feed what was the input for the next so using the very simple cybernetic thinking literally coupled these um, different units together and we proved the principle of the project because we could try trans- right. but we developed this almost like a cow's stomach you know the different stomach chambers that were processing the waste so we took liquid waste which was gray water and urine and transformed that into a whole range of products from cleaned water bioelectricity which is really important because that becomes a an important power source, the removal of toxins like um, nitrous gases, and uh, reclaiming phosphate from uh, detergents, because there's a phosphate shortage going on. But also we could claim biomass as a basic, um, you know, carbohydrate structure. So from waste, we could separate out all these different fractions. So if you think about the way that petroleum or crude oil is, petroleum is produced from crude oil, it's a fractionation process. And so these living metabolisms were working not at you know 1000 degrees (laughs) but at room temperature because of their incredible biochemistry they could process these complex organic inputs differently to produce quite refined resource streams and some of those could be used back in the home and those that couldn't you know could be put out in the soil or out in in the in the garden because essentially this is a technical composting process I mean that's that's essentially it it's like composting part two Let's enter the new millennium because if you look at a compost heap all kinds of different stuff is going on there it's aerobic on the outside very anaerobic on the inside and you've got these incredible redox potential so that's let's call that chemical power i mean you can do all kinds of wonderful stuff with chemical power you've got these little factories going on and we've never really structured that you know we we, there are obviously some traditional methods of heating water through the heat produced by composts but really this is bringing a 21st century lens to waste to think about okay so all these all this transformation, can we spatialize that? So when we introduce space and time into it, we can see things differently, and we can move it around and we can find different relationships with it. And that's essentially where we're at. And also with the production of electrons, the bioelectricity, we now have a straight link to the smart city, right? We can siphon off those electrons and we can charge batteries up, we can use those electrons as data to tell us how the system's getting on. We can even use them to drive which is something that we were doing for the Alice project, again, working with the University of the West of England and Julie Freeman, who's a data artist. And so now we have these microbial human interfaces and, you know, it's possible to see to see the microbes and also follow the data to see how they're performing and that's important because the ability for us to relate to microbes is not the same as us relating to a cat they don't they don't have big eyes they're not cute and furry and you don't really want to put your fingers in them they are that nasty stuff that exists beneath the limits of the plug hole that black knotted biofilm with all the hair down it that you, you want to get someone else to sort out that's what microbes look like at the macro scale and um, so so they're not really relatable and you do instinctively want to reach... <laughs> for the bottle of of detergent to, to get rid of it. So it was important for us to actually be able to create a relatable interface so that the people who might be thinking of this technology were going, oh no, but we don't want it sticky and we don't want it slimy and we don't want it looking nasty like algae blooms or you know the plaque on your teeth, all those things that we normally associate with microbes. What we want to do is actually create good design. And in the Living Architecture project, it really was proof of principle, but it did raise some very, interesting materials which are things like ceramics. Ceramics are the next generation for um, some of these microbial designs and if you think of you know what ceramics can do in architecture, Gaudi for example, you can imagine just how beautiful designed compositions could be and you never need to see the microbe and also ceramics are becoming a really interesting technology because of the essentially the chemistry you know we're learning more about the chemistry of ceramics and the way that we can treat and fire them that's making them an incredible powerful natural technology and so I I think that what we'll see is a is a huge uh, demand for new kinds of ceramics uh, when we're thinking about Creating relatable interfaces with microbes, not just to hide them, but also to facialize them. They're and if I, the, I think, yes, yeah,
0: have, have a design for them, meaning that's
1: right. That's right.
0: There is, it sounds like in the Living Architecture Project, there is a macro design. There is a yeah a deep understanding of, of science but yet I, it, it sounds like you're reintroducing but simply in more practical ways the microbiome in a way that we've just avoided right we, we, we've simply kept that out but your point is almost that that circularity that, that waste reuse and re, re-rendering it into it sounds like electricity and phosphates is is actually profound right that if you can actually make buildings more lifelike like bacteria do this right lots of lots of living things do this that is kind of the the lesson to be learned by by architects by city planners by regulators
1: Right. And this is really important because if we think of the original ECOS and, you know, the idea of a a household economy, which essentially relied on a plot of land outside the city limits where the inhabitants, the family in that household may not necessarily be related to each other. But they tended that plot of land and that plot of land pretty much served most of their needs. And they went to the marketplace a little bit. what we're doing with these microbial technologies is taking that plot of land and folding it and micro-miniaturizing it into a living architecture so that rather than the plot of land being outside because effectively what's driving the plot of land is the microbe on the fertile soil doing all that transforming creating the potential for growth of plants for feeding animals all that kind of thing but that same fertility is in technical apparatus and we can think of them as as a kind of biocomputer and with our 21st century insights, we can start to design those metabolisms. And if we then use other kinds of microbes that produce a lot of biomass, so some of the microalgae, we're making food uh, without much external space. So we don't need to own land, which is, a, I, I think, a problem in the city. We might have a little window box, but really not much else. But actually, now we can reclaim the relationship between house and land, and that it will never be But if we can reclaim a significant proportion of that, we can reduce our utilities bills, we can have healthier and not necessarily, I'm not going to say necessarily cleaner, healthier, in the sense that the microbiomes within our homes are stable and rich and healthy, because they're acclimatized to us. And when you have a stable biofilm, it resists pathogens. And we've seen that in the microbial fuel cells demonstrated again by the University of West of England, which when you get a microbial fuel cell and you loop infected effluent through it, so for example, with hepatitis B, the biofilm doesn't like it and it will remove the hepatitis B. Now that is a significant breakthrough for times of pandemic and for the um, sanitation industry because it means that we can remove pathogens from waste streams and we could do that in you, the home.
0: It sounds like you need these stable microbiome. Like the, the, it's, it's the unstable microbiomes that actually can become positive feedback loops to these pathogenic bacteria, right? right? Is that right?
1: Exactly. That's exactly what happens when you get the zoonosis that you get stable host you know microbial relationships they've kind of tuned their bodies to each other they don't die maybe they get a few sniffles and sneezes but on the whole, it's, it's stable, they're okay. Then we introduce something completely unknown, like us. <laughs> we stand in the way of that relationship and the microbe goes, hey, new hunting lands. And now we have no prior knowledge, no prior biological knowledge of this agent. And, you know, that's exactly it. It. it's the cascade. <laughs> Yeah.
0: Well, this has been so fascinating. I've found this, the conversation about experimental architecture and living cities just so interesting. It, it's almost, it's one of those fields that, that doesn't lend itself well to kind of a, a short, pithy description, because you really have to kind of reconceptualize what you think of as an inner inanimate building, right, or object or, or city. Rachel, this has been so interesting. So I wanted to thank you for sharing such interesting and diverse set of intellectual fields that we kind of covered today. I really enjoyed this. and I think there's so much that the real estate industry, you know, which is obviously where we focus can learn from the work that you're doing. And I'd love to find more ways to kind of share those insights with certainly the the LPs and the investors in Fifth Wall, because it, it, it wasn't even intuitive to me as someone who's focusing so much on technology and kind of redefining the built world, how important. Important the microbiome is to real estate these objects that I really before this call conceptualized as being inanimate inherently so just so interesting I wanted to thank you for the conversation
1: well it's been a real pleasure talking to you and I, I'd never turned down an opportunity to talk about my favorite subject uh, which is weird and wonderful biology but really thank you for making this platform possible and for taking a risk with unconventional conversations
0: great well thanks Rachel Thanks for listening to this episode of Building to Zero. All of these episodes and more are available on our YouTube channel. To learn more about Fifth Wall, visit our website at www.fifthwall.com.